First Timothy chapter 5, I'm going to start at verse 24 and read through chapter 6, verse 2. This is only four verses, but uh, it's the last two verses of chapter 5, the first two of chapter 6 in First Timothy. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise, that is, which are not evident, they cannot be concealed. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. This is not a paragraph, a complete thought. It's two thoughts, but... um, One of them didn't take up enough time, and I didn't want to make you think that we could have short sermons. So we're going to look at the two verses of chapter 5 and just the first verse of chapter 6 today. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, your mercy, your goodness, speak to us. Give us insight and understanding, not just of your word, but of ourselves, and how your word applies to each of us, certainly individually, but also as a body, as a family. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let me just read verses 24 and 25 again. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. The truth in these two verses only makes sense if you believe in God, if you accept the Bible as the word of God, And you believe what the Bible says about a final judgment for all mankind, including Christians. Otherwise, the alternative is to believe that some people will actually get away with their evil deeds. They're going to go through life and die and nobody, except a select few, uh, will know about what they've really done. And the same can be true for those who do really good deeds. They aren't always recognized. People don't know about them. The implication of these two verses is that no one sins. So you can think about mine and your own. No one's sins or good deeds can be hidden from public view forever. If they're not made evident in this life, they will be made evident in the final judgment. And the point is, is that our lifespan on earth, however long that is, is not the only opportunity for the truth about us to be revealed 
to all of us. This particular truth is supported by a number of scriptures. For example, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9, it says, He who walks in integrity walks securely with God, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, Jesus makes a statement. I'm taking it out of its context. It fits into the context. I won't explain the context. Makes perfect sense in the context, but the point also is made. Therefore, he says, do not fear them, those who are going to be against you because you're a believer. Do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. It's quite a statement when you think about just the religious leaders who planned the demise of Jesus. Now we have some indication of that in the scriptures, but it had to have been a a broader, more invested effort. There had to be some pretty strong ill will and fears that went into that whole uh, effort by the religious leaders to crucify him. One day all of that will come out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear. Now we're not talking about just the bad people outside the church. We're talking about ourselves. For we, us, believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good, we like that part, or bad. So assuming you believe in a final judgment for God's people, the question becomes, why is it important to remind us that no one sins or good deeds can be hidden from public view forever? We could have stopped here because the point is made. No one sins or good deeds can be hidden forever. But I would like us to go further. So I'm encouraging you to think with me and Kind of understand as best you can what I'm wanting to get across. Given the preceding context of discovering who is a widow indeed, and who should care for the widows, and who should and who shouldn't be an elder, and which elders are to be given double honor. So if you look at that context and you think, okay, Paul is completing this thought down here at the end of chapter 5. It is probable the reason for reminding us of this is the challenge within the church of knowing each other well enough to make such decisions wisely. The reason this is a challenge is because of the problem of hypocrisy and pride on the part of those who hide their sin and the problem of humility on the part of those who are not seeking recognition for doing good to others. And I'll explain that second problem. Bear with me. Within the church, our church, the problem of hypocrisy and pride among those who hide their wrongdoing in order to look better than they are, the problem with that is that it leads to shallow relationships. And it is hard to know other believers well enough to 
discern their spiritual condition when your relationship with them is shallow. The problem of humility among those who quietly do good is not a problem for them. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is for the rest of us. And the problem is that believers like this who aren't looking for accolades or praise or uh, to be seen and known for their good deeds, the problem is, is that we are likely to overlook them when we as a church are seeking godly, biblically qualified leaders and teachers. It is important in understanding what I'm going to say beyond this. It is important to understand that humility is an essential characteristic for any serious godliness to grow within us. With these two problems in mind, I want to talk about the problem of wanting to be seen as being better than we are. We'll get to the problem of humility among those who don't want to be recognized for good deeds. And there are several ways in which we endeavor to make this happen, help ourselves appear better than we are. One of the ways we do this is to keep our ungodly desires and activities, fears, anxiety, anger, conflicts at home, ill will toward a neighbor or associate or others, such things as these, to keep them out of the view of other Christians so they will think better of us than we are. One of the things that uh, struck me, and actually I became one of three pastors at that church. I wasn't old enough for it to strike me at the church I grew up in. But one of the things that struck me at that fellowship was the number of people, and it wasn't that great, but the number of people who would drive into a Sunday, park their car, and they're still arguing and fighting in the car, and then they get out and they look as if everything is fine. That's called managing your behavior so that you look good because you want to be seen as better than you are. Another way we do this is when we are with other Christians, we manage our words and behavior. In other words, we're more careful about what we say. We don't use all the language or we don't tell all the stories or we don't, we're not as critical or we're not this or we're not that as much. We manage ourselves better when we are with other Christians in order to present ourselves more as we want to be seen instead of presenting ourselves as more nearly as we are. The third way we do this is to limit what we reveal about ourselves so that the Christians around us only know as much about us as will keep us looking as good as we want to look in their sight. I don't know if you've ever wondered why I talk about my own sins. There's several reasons, and all of them to me are important. I'm not going to go into it for time, but one of the reasons is I want to set an example for you to be honest about yourself. If I'm unwilling to be honest about myself, how can I ask you to do that 
about yourself. The three efforts that I just explained are examples of hypocrisy and pride. And even in small amounts or in seemingly insignificant ways, hypocrisy and pride damages our own spiritual health. It changes us not for the better, but for the worse. It degrades the spiritual health of the church. It hinders the spiritual growth of not just individuals in the church, but us as a whole group. And it keeps the relationship shallow. So once again, we promote shallow relationships within the church when we hide parts of our true selves in order to look better than we are. But we do that same thing when our conversations with one another are most often limited to topics with minimal or no spiritual value. We accept and perpetuate shallow relationships as if they are the norm when we forego the kind of thoughtful conversations and careful listening that opens doors to knowing one another more deeply more closer to who we really are. So we can uh, promote shallow relationships by not being honest about ourselves with each other. But also we do that by not listening to each other. I've tried to make the point over the years that all of us reveal things about ourselves just in normal conversation. If you're listening, if you're thoughtfully listening, and and it may take a while to get good at this, I don't know. But if you're thoughtfully listening to somebody and they're just talking about a situation at work or with a friend or in the neighborhood or with their spouse, it doesn't have to be anything spiritual, but if you just listen to the way they describe that situation, it tells you things about them that, If we're going to grow together, if we're going to be invested in each other, if this is going to be a body that works together, you need to ask them about. But you have to listen to pick up on those things. So whether limiting what we reveal about ourselves to look better or accepting casual conversation as the norm, Either way, we are promoting shallow relationships, which in the church limits the help and support that we can give each other. And especially when one of us or many of us are facing temptations or going through trials and tribulation or maybe exhibiting ungodly attitudes or feeling discouraged or need help for working at changing or maybe even when we begin to stray in other ways from the narrow path. Now listen carefully. This does not mean that we must reveal every detail about some sin or failure or foolish choice or fear-based decision or angry moment. This does not mean every conversation has to be about spiritual things or a discussion about our spiritual condition or need for help. 
But shouldn't some of them be? Shouldn't some of them be? One of the uh, experiences that is not one of my favorites is to go to a wedding and then the reception. And the reception, at the reception, the music is so loud, it's very hard to hear the person even next to you. We did go to a wedding where the uh, DJ played the music quietly enough that you could actually have conversations, and I praised him at the end, and he uh, acknowledged that he didn't like it so loud either. Um, But that's rare. Now, it'd be very easy in those settings not to try and find meaningful conversation, but somehow I can find them. There are people in settings like that, you can actually have meaningful conversations with them. But you have to look for them, and you have to work at it. You have to want to be part of that. And it is true, there are settings where it is not realistic for more meaningful conversation to happen. That's true as well. When you're at a football game or a baseball game, or you're uh, at another setting where it's just not going to happen. That's realistic. And yet it's my experience that there are settings where it could happen if we're interested in helping or making it happen. The other problem I mentioned is the problem of humility among those who quietly do good. And as I said, it's not a problem for them, but for the rest of us. Now, without question, we need humility to serve others with the kind of godly attitude that drives loving, compassionate, patient, and even merciful service. Humility is not just a word. It's a character quality. It's a recognition of who I am deep down inside so that I am able to have at least sympathy and compassion for who you are and what you're struggling with. I know how hard it is to be godly. I used to pray that God would change me. For some reason, he didn't. then I ask God, well, if you're not going to change me, then what has to happen to change? And when he made that clear to me, I thought, okay, I can do that. And then I found out how hard it was. It would be like Israel going into the promised land and having to fight people group after people group, well-equipped armies, giants. It's hard work. And if I have humility, then I know how hard it is for me, which is why I would not say, how could you do that? I know how you could do it because I know how I could do it. So if we are going to do good for others, we need humility. There's an interesting statement in Romans chapter 12. Those who show mercy are to do it cheerfully. Why? Why is this statement in the Bible? Why does he have to exhort someone who's doing good to others to do it cheerfully? Well, I can tell you because it isn't always a cheerful experience. People aren't always happy to have you do them good. People aren't always grateful. Sometimes it's really messy. Sometimes it's painful. 
It's humility that helps us do good to others with love and compassion and patience and mercy. We need humility when seeking the good and serving the needs of others if we're going to do so free of pride and selfish motives, such as wanting recognition for doing good. I've shared this story, but let me just remind you, many years ago, I met a man who was taking his family to South America to do mission work. He was, uh, at that time, this would have been 70, 1970. At that time, he was making a hundred and a quarter a year, 125,000 a year plus bonuses. That to me was just an exorbitant amount of money. And I said, why would you do this? Why would you leave that to go to the mission field? Couldn't understand it. And he said, well, because I read this book and it changed my life. So he said, why don't you read it? I did. And there was three questions that I had to answer every day. And the second question was, what kind deed will you do for someone for which you expect nothing in return? It would take me at least a half an hour, 45 minutes, for at least the first two weeks to figure out what I could actually do for which I did not expect anything in return. The first day I thought about that question, I realized I don't do anything without expecting something in return. It's always a trade. It's always a barter. It's always, well, I did this for you, then why aren't you doing this for me? Isn't that pride? Isn't that wanting recognition? Isn't that wanting to give to receive? Could I give just to give? Without humility, you won't give just to give. Jesus warned us about this whole thing of wanting praise, wanting recognition, wanting something from others for what we're doing. And I'm going to read four verses out of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, starting at verse 1 through verse 4. Here's what Jesus says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor... Do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Do you know what that means? There's nothing more to receive. You've gotten everything out of it you put into it. If you want recognition for doing good and you're recognized, You've gotten everything out of that good deed that you put into it, and there is no more blessing, reward, or whatever from God to be given. You've gotten it. But when you give to the poor, Jesus said, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The reality is pride is self-focused, which is why it seeks or even demands recognition. 
Humility is God and others focused, which is why it does not seek or even want human recognition for good deeds done. You know when you have stepped into a healthiest pride that I know of, you'll know when you're there because you won't want somebody to come up and say, nice sermon, Dave. When you don't want to be recognized. Why? Because knowing that God knows is enough. Nothing more is needed. Nothing more is wanted. I was telling Barbie as we were taking the walk this week that I had a pretty unique experience. In the course of this one week, uh, the, the second part is the unique, but in, in the, uh, the first part is I was soundly, duly, strongly, angrily criticized for having failed this person. And then several days later, uh, at the end of a particular Bible study, uh, one of the gentlemen that was there, uh, he's just a little bit younger than I am, so it was kind of rare. Uh, Actually, he's never done this before, but he hugged me because he was grateful for what I had said in the Bible study that helped him understand God better. Now, I could focus on the hug say, wow, isn't this wonderful? But the reality is I got both. Can I be humble enough to hold on to both those and realize that this is reality? And am I humble enough to realize that the hug and the praise is because of what God's taught me, not because of something in me? Or what I have. The problem with people being humble, though, who do good, is that they're easily overlooked. And if you're looking for godly advice, you're likely to overlook that person, but that's the kind of person who you need to talk to. They know about humility, they know what it takes to get this this far of a place with God to get this far down the road. Just that you don't see it because you're not seeking recognition. I want to end this part with these three questions. How well are you willing to be known? How well are you willing to be known? Second question, how well do you know the others in our church? And what do you know about others? Is it from personal interaction or hearsay? That's all one question, by the way. How well do you know the others in our church and what you know about them? Is it from personal interaction or hearsay? And the third question is, is it possible 
This is not an indictment. It's an encouragement to get you to think. Is it possible we show more concern and are quicker to talk about each other's physical ailments than about each other's spiritual ailments? Or how to apply God's word to the challenging situations in our lives? Chapter 6, verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Here in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul is addressing the Christian slave. And it would be very easy to just say, okay, that's them, that's not me, that's not us, so good for them. Well, I would encourage us, as I have all along and I'm doing again today, Let us see what we can learn from this verse about ourselves. And I want to begin by saying that slavery, even in its best forms, is degrading. Because regardless of the quality of one's master, whether he's cruel or kind, to be a slave is to be owned as if you are a piece of property which your master can do with as he pleases. And to be a slave is to be ruled as if you are an animal with no will or desires or interests of your own. I realize we are called to be slaves of Jesus Christ. That's another Sunday. But the point to be made here is that the Christian slaves were in a pretty unwanted situation. Now, in contrast to that, within the church, believers were being taught to treat each other with equality and respect without regard to one's status or kind of work or position in the world. And Paul affirms this in several places, and I'm going to just read two of them. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says, Now mind you, in the world this is not true. But in the church, this was to be the mindset of the believers. Galatians 3, 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now the Jews thought of themselves as certainly better than the Gentiles, the Greeks. No equality, he says. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. It is Jesus Christ who creates the equality among us, not our status, not our wealth, not our position in the world, not whether we're a slave or a free man. It is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. The new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction No distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. For Christ is all and in all. Again, 
The equalizing factor is Jesus Christ. And yet in spite of what was or is happening within the church, the relationship between slaves and their masters is often adversarial. Imagine being owned. Imagine being seen as a piece of property. And then imagine being a Christian slave who is possibly ill-treated in the home of his master, yet when he goes to church, he's treated with equality and respect. Two worlds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about that picture, to me, I can see how easy it would be for a slave, a believing slave, to go home and have a sense of disdain or show disrespect to his owner. After all, he goes to church and it's a completely different world. And it's a wonderful world. And he's happy there and he feels good there. But then he goes home and he's reminded that he's owned and he has to act as if he's owned. And so Christian slaves are exhorted to regard their own masters as worthy, as worthy of all honor. To regard in this sense is to treat your master and I'm going to spread it out to our boss or any other authority to treat the one in authority over us as worthy of all honor for two reasons. Paul gives two reasons. First, because you realize that how you treat your master will affect his view of God and the teachings of Christianity. It doesn't affect the teachings. It affects how he sees the teachings of Christianity. Think about that. How we treat those in authority over us when we are Christians affects their view of God and affects their view of the teachings of Christianity. Second, we are to treat them with all honor because we value the reputation of God and we value his teachings. And so... We don't want anything, not even our own freedom or our own ability to say no to the boss or let the boss know he's a jerk. We don't want to let anything like that unnecessarily harm God's and the teaching's reputation. And if we apply this principle to all of us, then the important message in this verse is that regardless of our circumstances or who has authority over us, we are to live the Christian life in such a way as to make God, the Christian life, and the Christian message look good so that no one will have a justifiable reason to speak against them. I was at Detroit Bible College at the time, I don't profess to have been a believer at that time, though I thought of myself that way. And I wanted to buy a car, and I ended up buying my grandfather's car. He was in Fort Wayne. And he happened to be out of town at the time, so my uncle, his son, was taking care of the sale. I got on a Greyhound, went to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, paid the money for the car to uncle, and it was a Friday. 
And he wasn't certain uh, what Michigan laws were. I had no clue either. Uh, concerning a license plate and registration for the car. So he had it notarized for Monday. Now you understand what a notary is. A notary stamps the piece of paper and says, this is the truth. And I am validating it. So I have this piece of paper, the sale, notarized for Monday. This is Friday, several days before. And uh, the truth was, I bought it on Friday, not Monday. I'm in the car on the way home, and um, I was going rather fast uh, down the freeway, down 94. I was doing about 90 miles an hour, and I came upon a site I had never seen before, and it was a truck jammed under a viaduct. I mean, he was just stuck. And I'm so engrossed in this, and I'm thinking about it, that I failed to look in my rearview mirror, and lo and behold, there was a state trooper catching up to me, and he pulled me over. Now, I deserved the ticket. There is no doubt about it. But this is the sad part of the story. I had forgotten my driver's license back in Southfield where I lived. So I had no proof of who I was. No Michigan proof. So he said, how do I know who you really are? I said, the only proof I have are my books from school. Detroit Bible College. These were all Christian books. Now when he saw the sale, piece of paper, and he saw the notary, he was even more upset at me, rightfully so. So what did I make God look like? What did I make Christianity look like? I did not live in a way that was concerned about God's reputation about the reputation of the faith, about the reputation of the teachings. Rather, I was living in a way that was concerned about myself. The reason to treat even bad authorities with respect is not because this is what we have to do. It's because we want to do it. We want God to look good. We want the scriptures to look good. We want the Christian life to look good. Sadly, that wasn't my only experience at making God look bad. But I certainly did on that day. The Bible addresses the relationship between slaves and their masters in several places. You can read Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8, or Colossians 3, uh, starting at verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. And there's Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Philemon, which is a whole book about this issue, and verses 8 through 21. And then, of course, one of my favorite portions is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Now, we won't look at all of them, but I would like you to consider just some of them. So I'm urging you to think about where you and how you can apply the truths and principles in these scriptures, in these scriptures to your values your attitudes, and your behaviors toward those in authority in order to make God, the Christian life, and the Christian message look better than you're already making it look. So, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, who and do this with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart. This has got to be something you own. 
something you buy into, something that you want to do from the heart, not just feel obligated to do. That's what makes the difference. It's hard to have a good attitude when in your heart you're resistant to the good attitude. In fact, you have a bad attitude. Do it as to Christ. Not by way of eye service to please your master, but as slaves of Christ. Do the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord. Do you see the perspective? It isn't serving the master, it's serving God. It isn't just pleasing the master, it's making God look good. Does that matter to you? Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. How many of us argue with those in authority over us? Well, of course, I argued with my parents. And I suppose those of us who have children, their kids argue with us. But how about the teacher? How about beyond that, the policeman? Whoever is in authority over us, the boss. Not argumentative. Not pilfering. Pilfering, what in the world? Don't be taking what isn't yours. Yeah, the one in authority may have some pretty nice things. Don't be taking stuff from them. It's not yours to take, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn, that is, beautify, make glorious the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And 1 Peter 2, I think, is just great because it deals with not just decent masters, but bad ones. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. You cannot show submissive, the kind of submissiveness that is godly and loving and respectful from the heart unless you're doing it for God himself and by the power of God. This is where faith in God is so essential. Well, doing this finds favor with God. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, that finds favor with God. So if you have a bad boss, a bad master, the policeman's not very nice, do what's right anyway. Show respect, obey, listen. Because this finds favor with God. It puts God on your side. I know you're already aware that God's on your side. But favor with God... That's worth a lot. And then he asks the question, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? That's no big deal. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For us Christians, those of us who are believers, our attitude and our behavior towards those in authority over us is of utmost importance in relation to making God, the Christian life, and the Christian message look good. I would like to add that even applies to how we talk about those in authority over us. So let me finish with this. 
Think back over your life as a Christian. Have you expressed an attitude or behaved in front of or toward an authority in a way that made God and the Christian life and the teachings of Scripture look bad? If you have, learn from that. Let that show you some ways that you could correct your your own life and your attitudes and your behaviors. And my last thought is this. Failure to respectfully submit to our earthly authorities, at least in most situations, begins with a failure to submit to God and to our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot swing away from God without turning your back on him in order to do what's wrong over here. It starts in our relationship with God.